From grain to glass, this show is dedicated to helping you make the best beer possible. So strap in and hold on to your mash tons. We're Homebrew Bound. Welcome to Homebrew Bound. I'm Casey. And I'm Brian. And this is the best beer show on the internet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Brian, I'm sorry you can't hear that. I like, and We're doing the remote thing again, and I haven't quite figured that right. bug out yet. So you just have to watch me dance to nothing. Speaking of, have you seen that, uh, that clip uh, where uh, somebody took the music out of um, Kevin Bacon's dirt, uh, Footloose scene where he's like going through the warehouse? It's terrifying. I mean, there's a bunch of those, isn't there? I mean, maybe. But it's like, I don't know. It's pretty terrifying. I love it. It's great. It's yeah. my favorite. All right. Before we get too deep here, we're going to give a big shout out to the American Homebrewers Association. They do a lot of support homebrewing and homebrewers. And now they support us. During the AHA, we'll give you discounts at homebrew shops and select tap rooms, as well as give you access to the fantastic Zymergy magazine. Go click on the referral link them of our homepage or use blind-ninja-studios at checkout and join today. I want to give a big shout out to our patrons, specifically our Black Belt patrons, Andy Thompson, Bjorn Bjordson, Hoffman Barrel Brewing, Brian Bryanson, Devin Sinson, Phil Feldman, and Tyler Romanski. If you'd like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash blindestudios and become a patron today. Brian. Yeah. What have you been up to beer-related, my friend? Well, the only thing I have to talk about is the the uh, just fantastic uh, that German Doppelbach we drank on the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Sal- Salvatore, right? Yep, that would be the one. And um, everybody, I think, I hope everybody knows German lager is my favorite. And I haven't had one of those in a long time. And it was a nice treat. And it was last episode that we talked about. Uh, we did the first round of our, um, you know, style-o-rama. <laughs> where we rolled dice and uh made up a brand new beer style i mean nice these are gonna water. catch on man like i swear I to god so. by the end of, by the end of the year there's gonna be a commercial uh like cold tropical barley wine so yeah thanks thanks to bjorn uh, bjorn bjorn <laughs> always with the great the greatest ideas so oh yeah yeah, that's about it. I don't know. What about you, man? I mean, kind of about the same. Uh, just it, it's been slow. Uh, I don't know. For whatever reason, January is just always kind of a slow, slow brewery uh, month for me. Um, yeah. Uh, well, we're in the here in the upper Midwest. It, we've been getting pounded with snow. And it's been a lot of not going snow. anywhere. Yeah, it's I, I went to. Uh, Lucy's house yesterday or the day before and I despite having really great winter tires and four wheel drive uh, I slid right past her driveway <laughs> glare ice they don't throw it out in sand out in the sticks I guess yeah so. alright so um, let's uh, let's talk about our commercial calibration right let's just dive right oh. into that um, this week we are doing uh, New Belgium's Voodoo Ranger. A I don't know if it was a surprise for them or not, but it's become a hit. One of the biggest uh, one of the biggest beers for the brand, um, spawning off. Yeah, and they do a whole bunch of different riffs on this beer too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they do a ton of different riffs on it. Like it's it's become a whole thing. There's like 
uh, if you search for Voodoo Ranger, it even redirects to like VoodooRanger.com instead of New Belgium. Um, yeah, it is a classic American IPA. This kind of is one of my favorites. I know I just said German beer, but nope, I changed my mind. Now it's American IPA. Yep. Um, pours with a, I mean, with a beautiful head that dissipates pretty quick. I poured this at the beginning of the show, and mine's already pretty or down there pretty much. But again, I'm not pouring it with the vigor that you are. Yeah, this is where I'm at. Yeah, mine's I mean, a couple fingers, but you can see it's. We did an episode a while back on. You know why? Why does why are the bubbles larger in this in this head? And you know we learned about that, um, and that's what's happening with this one. So I assume that this one's going to dissipate pretty quickly. But it is mm-hmm. crystal clear because you you know they probably put it through a center, centrifuge. Oh yeah, um, patented beer light leg. I can I can see the dog through this beer. So yeah. Um, I have not heard him this whole time. He's being a very good boy. Yeah, he's he's laying on the floor, growl like like just kind of complaining. Yeah, sounds uh, about right. But you know, that's that's what you do. Um, aroma wise, amazing. Big tropical fruit notes. That pineapple, like mango, really just punches you in the face. Big, big pineapple, also pine. Yeah. So a bit of both, um, but this, 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 the nose is un- unbelievable on this. Like, I don't know, you and I bought this at different locations and mine says. Mine has a best buy May 23. Same. So we probably have very similar, uh, similar batches. Yeah. Very on. similar freshness. Um, yeah. The aroma on this is fantastic. Yeah, you don't really get much past the hops. Wow. Oh. That's very like candy forward. And then there's uh there's like a a breadiness on the back end. I need to drink a little more. I'm not really getting the breadiness. I all I'm getting is the the candiness and that yeah, I'm getting a bunch of candy. Yeah, I'm getting um almost like a pilsner quality on the back end. Actually, yeah. It's hard to get past because um, there's a little bit of sticky dank, too, to the yep. to the flavor. Despite, like, that candy is, like, boom, right up front, and then it, it folds into this, like, The dank. resiny, like, uh, piney. Like, and and it, I really feel like between this brewery and what I expect out of just a regular-ass IPA, because it just says IPA on the can. Yep. Right? Um. It's, it is what I expect, and I know that Belgium, New Belgium is in Colorado, and so this is, I don't know, do we call this a a no-coast IPA? Do we call this a... I, I mean, Colorado, um, like, I feel like it's almost honorary West Coast, depending on which side of the so Rockies too. you're on, but... I would think so, too, but I think if you, yeah, if you just look this... Beer up in the dictionary, I think it, it would just... The lack of a uh, caramel color, too, makes me not think it's a no-coast. I like that. And I think, honestly, that perception-wise, for me, like, um, just that this is a more of a golden color, I'm, I'm a lot more attracted to this beer, too, um, than I would be if it had more caramel or darker, yeah. like... Um, um, I have I have a I have a spec sheet for the beer... Um, let's see. 
Uh, ABV, 7%. IBUs, 50. Um, ale yeast. Um, hops. You want? Do you want to guess? Uh, hang on. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. Or no, hang on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight different hops in this beer. Holy shit. You want to... Uh, I'll, I'll, I bet you dollars to donuts or Simcoe in here. Uh, no Simcoe. Fudge. Uh, you citra? lost all your donuts. There is Citra. And Cascade. Uh, there is Cascade. Um, Amarillo. There's something. There, yeah, there you go. Amarillo. I was just going to say there's something dank in there that's poking out that made me yep. think Simcoe. But it's Amarillo. Yep. Uh, Mosaic. Cool. Yep. Uh, Chinook. Yep. Uh, Strata. Not really getting Strata. Uh, and HBC 522. Oh, they listed obviously, Mosaic twice. <laughs> obviously, we don't know what HBC whatever is. Yeah, yeah. Um, look it up, but uh, malt bill looks very simple, too, which I like to see in an IPA. Uh, pale mm. malt, honey malt, Pilsner malt. That's, that's where that candy's coming from. Is that, that honey? Malt. Yep. That's a weird, that's a weird choice. I like it. I'm not mad about it. I'm okay with it. I'm but getting I, as long as getting sweeted out. Yeah, as long as I'm getting slapped with with dankness on the back end, like I'm I'm cool with it. But that's just me, obviously. Yeah, I'm not saying that my opinion makes it bad or good. Hmm. It is a pretty great beer. I don't. I like it. It's it's surprising. It's not a beer that I drink very often. Well, I don't know if when we're going out trying to have a pint somewhere, I don't know if we see this one. I I don't yeah. I, I just if you want to talk about the the way the market is working as a whole, I just like you know I uh the craft brewing industry is in a slump that what did you say last time we never got out of? Mm-hmm. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> slump on slump. So it's it's interesting. It's a weird times. Weird times indeed. Well, speaking of weird times, let's talk about the past. Oh, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> All right, oh, guys. Um, for yeah, the Homebrew Bound Book Club now, I guess, is kind of what we do, uh, where we've been going through, like, over the past couple of years, we've been going through books slowly, um, learning along with each other. And some have been great. Some have been eh. Um, but it's all been fun. Uh, and now we are doing Farmhouse house Ales, Culture and Craftsmanship in the Belgian Tradition. Uh, this is by Phil uh, Markowski. Um, I have another farm Farmhouse Ale book uh, recommended by Bjorn that is about the Nordic farmhouse tradition. So maybe we'll tackle that um, after this one because I think uh, like reading that one and reading this one, there's a lot of differences. Um, well, that's where your sati comes into play, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Very important because that farmhouse aspect is different wherever. And per the, I think the like the first chapter or two in this book also, uh, ironically, most of the um, farmhouse breweries left behind, according to this book, yep, uh, are in Bavaria and obviously also yeah in Franconia. I did some hiking in Franconia. They have uh, they have really cool. Um, hikes that you can do that basically you you start the hike and you end up in all these like you hike through all these little small towns that have breweries and like uh guest houses and you just kind of eat and drink your way for like 10 miles 
unless you don't have any cash, and then you oh, starve uh, for ten miles. Yeah. What a bummer. Yeah, well, I had cash. I had enough for beer and stuff for me, but nobody else had cash. So somebody had bought a round for everybody, and then we starved. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a monster. I'm not a monster. <laughs> you I wasn't going to sit and eat and drink in front of everybody. So you just drank then? We just drank together. Yeah. <laughs> We pooled our money enough for two rounds. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so this is by Phil Murkowski. Uh, this book uh, specifically focuses on uh, Cezanne and Beer de Garde, um, or like the farmhouse ales from the Belgian region, or from the, no, the, the Flanders region, um, where, yeah, where, yeah. So he basically distilled all of the farmhouse ales, like, into two categories uh, for modern styles. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit too, I think, as we go on, because I have some feelings about that, but I haven't finished the book yet, so I want to hold those for like an after after discussion. I feel like it's really hard to distill an entire region or like down into two styles. Right. Um, so most of the farmhouse brewing, so it's like, well, this starts with the history, so we'll get into that. Um, was done during uh, winter, uh, building a stock of provision beer to last through the next seasons. Um, brewers learned two ways to formulate stability in beer for longer storage, increase the hopping rate and the alcohol. Um, these two methods resulted in two different types of beers, one hoppy and refreshing, the other full-bodied and a source of energy. And so immediately we're already starting to divide this into Saison and Beer de Garde. Right, yeah, because this one of them is uh, you're you're more of your like sustenance type of beer, or as you kind of put it, the source of energy. So it's interesting to think about this because you know you 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 neither what what can you do to to give it the stability? Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's well, there's two ways, right? Like what is a longer storage or increasing the hopping rate or or rather, the two ways are to increase the hopping rate or uh, the alcohol. Um, and to think about this as like a, something to, to quaff to make yourself refreshed after working in the in the fields, um, the higher alcohol doesn't sound like you'd maybe want to go back to to work, you know, after. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I also feel like, um, this has been a big thing, like in my in my social media feeds, uh, the past like few months is debunking the myth that history wasn't full of like people who were drunk all the time, because life was hard, life sucked. Like, yeah, a lot of the beers weren't these like small beers or these table beers. They were like beers to be drunk to get drunk, like. Um, at least, like, in, like, the 1700s, 1800s. Going back farther, not entirely sure, but that's just what's kind of popped up in my feeds lately, which is fascinating. And so, I mean, if I was working in the fields, I'd, I think I'd rather work in the fields drunk than sober. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> or if I'm building a pyramid. Yeah, I'd rather do that drunk paid, than sober. I get paid one gallon of beer. <laughs> yeah, or beer bread or whatever the whatever. Yeah. 
Um, so there's also very few historic documents describing this, this like era of farmhouse brewing, like official documents. There's like records of like people saying they brewed and stuff, but there's not a ton of actual research. Um, and the two articles that we're going to talk about here are both from Englishmen, which already gives them a, like a weird, a weird like slant on it. A twinge, a twinge of bullshit. Yeah, Uh, right. But this is also, so they both came out in like in the late 1800s, early 1900s, which as we know is when brewing science kind of became a thing. Uh, we talked about that a little bit in one of our other, uh, during our other books where we were talking about like the discovery of yeast and um, malting practices and things like that. Well, think about uh, why there are few historic documents because Potentially, and I mean, this comes later in the book, or also this is slightly anecdotally, because there are a lot of things that are neither confirmed nor denied. Mm-hmm. So there are possibilities. But, you know, it's what what did we have for grist? Well, what was left over from last year? So it may not have been the same year to year. Yeah. You know, Grandpa said, throw two handfuls in. You know, and, and now I throw two handfuls in. Everybody's hands are different size, <laughs> right? Grandpa had big said three handfuls. I don't know. Grandpa had big spade hands. I have little baby right. Trump hands, and I just got to throw them in. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so there were what few documents describing farmhouse brewing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you wanna you wanna go into those. Sure. Uh, so, in an 1895 article published by George Ma Johnson attempted to define methods of farmhouse Belgian and French brewing versus the British brewing methods. And honestly, yeah, what does it say in the book? We've got to give France some screen time here, and we'll get yep. that a little bit because um, this was technically part of France. Um, yeah, northern France. So, we're talking about like France. southern Belgium, northern France. Right. And... Slightly part of the Netherlands. And part of Germany. Right. Uh, So this article noted that most Belgian beers at the time were in the range of 6 to 10 Play-Doh. And if you don't know Play-Doh, I don't know it offhand like I do standard gravity. So most of these beers were in the range of 1024 to 1040. And that's starting gravity. Right. And who knows what the finishing gravity is probably pretty low because as uh, we may or may not know uh personally uh saisons are real dry always uh beer de guard are at least the american styles are meant to be a little bit chewier so they probably were uh on the the higher end of something low <laughs> if that mm-hmm. makes sense the belgians seem to favor these lower attenuated uh type of beers to uh enhance the flavor and drinkability and i do think that that still holds true to this day honestly because find a Belgian beer on the shelf, you pop the cap off the bottle, it goes flying left, right, sideways. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what I know about that. All right. Uh, yeah, and then in 1905, another English brewer, uh, R.E. Evans, published a paper on the brewing in northern France. So, yeah, like we were saying, like this this region uh, like that we're talking about covers a, like this Flemish region covers a large swath of Europe. Um, of the, uh, 2,300 in breweries, uh, of breweries in France at the time, 1,800 were located in what was Flanders. 
So in that northern region. So, I mean, that's that's a large majority of them. Um, the majority of those were producing less than 3,000 U.S. barrels per year. Um, to put that in perspective, Brian, like, a small, like, U.S. brewery is producing how many barrels a year? No more than 3,000. Okay. And even even up to 10,000 is, is, quote, small. Okay. So 3,000 is, is that, I mean... It'd be like serving a community, right? Yeah, less than 3,000. I don't know. Your, your hopping barrels and your pitchforks are definitely 3,000 or less. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. Uh, production was focused on beers between 9 and 13.5 and Play-Doh or 1036 to 1054. So a little higher than what uh, George Maud Johnson saw. So these are probably the beer to guards because they're going to finish a little higher. Like if they're starting a little higher, you have to remember like our conversion at this time isn't nearly what it is now. Well, that too. And then we don't know what George Ma's like sample set was either. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, and then ingredient wise, they uh, these beers were brewed from local uh, champagne barley malt blended with imported African malts. Um, less that, than... that kind of threw me for a loop. That these were blended blended from barley grown in the African colonies, which is which is very interesting. So it's super fascinating. Um, yeah, and I wonder incredible. price wise, I wonder if it was cheaper grain coming from, uh, like because it's in a more abundant supply, just because of like the climate and like the growing season in a lot of the African colonies is a lot longer. Well, that that sent me down a rabbit hole because I don't. You you do hear about beers made in African colonies, and I mean, it likely is the northern African colonies. But you know, you you mostly hear about these African beer of any kind yeah. sort of being made with like sorghum and that. And I don't know if that's just well. And we we had this conversation last week too. Uh, so last week we were supposed to record, and we ended up um, like having a planning session instead, which we needed, and it was good. Um, but we we were talking about how we have a very like eurocentric view of beer because we were talking okay. about like the biggest beer in the world is snow from china which right. neither of us like i had never heard of it and like you had never really researched it you just like knew that fact kind of off i don't know why topic. But, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it was just, it was a very interesting, like, conversation. And so that's definitely something, like, as a show, we're going to have to dig into a little bit more. Because, yeah, we're very mm-hmm. Eurocentric in our beer knowledge. Absolutely. Um, and then, like, less than 10 to 15% extracts of, like, cane sugar or glucose syrup or, I guess, again, other things, like, brought in from the colonies. I think it's it's great, and I need to connect this somehow, and I will do that, obviously, off mic, but connecting when and why and how anyone thought to start adding an adjunct, you know, this, what they're talking about here, cane sugar, like a glucose syrup, and yeah, that they knew, like, oh, this is, we're breaking down, I don't know, you know, and this is... Well, Belgian candy sugar is such a big thing, right? Right, this is 1900s we're talking about, so there's that, but... um. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, the uh, other thing goes on to say that some some breweries did corn or rice flour uh, and added those to the mash ton. So really, they invented hazy beer. I mean, hazy beer is the oldest style. Turns out, the ancient Egyptians were yeah. brewing hazy before it was cool. Hell yeah. Um. Uh. The uh, both papers 
also noted uh, that extraordinarily long boil times were very commonplace, as long as 9 to 12 hours. That sounds real boring. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to remember at this time, too, um, a lot of these are direct fire. We're not looking at, like, steam kettles. We're not looking at anything like that, especially in the small scale. You are feeding coal or wood into, a, like, to keep this heat source going for 12 fucking hours. Yeah, that's a long time. And we're probably talking about a lot of kettle carm, too, so that's that could have to do some with, like, a lot of the, the Belgian, your Belgian beers have some pretty caramelized situations going on, but, I mean, that's often from, like, the sugar adjunct. Yeah, it's not necessarily from the, the Maillard reaction. Like, that's so not going to affect maybe, color a ton. Maybe add, maybe doing some of these other processes, and this is neither confirm or deny this speculation, but maybe, you know, the, the they were trying to mimic what these other beers were like by uh, doing a shorter boil, but adding more or less sugar. Yeah. Um, he has some supplemental materials in here and I kind of want to dive into those a little bit yeah. and try to understand these, these super long boils. Like what's, what's the reason behind them? Um, besides, yeah, unless, unless they're talking about also doing like decoction mashing and counting that as the boil. It's possible. Um, um, but yeah, it's, it's really hard to know without having the original papers in front of us. Right. And it does say too, that, you know, part of these notes here, both papers noted, or, you know, the long boil times, but Brewer sought out quote, maximum palate fullness and sweetness to compensate for low original gravities too. So, you know, maybe that this, what they were doing was just trying to mimic all of this and they just... Or maybe their extraction from the mash was so low that they needed to boil longer in order to hit those original gravities. Yes. Because, I mean, if you boil for 12 hours, like, your wart loss is going to be insane. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get a really concentrated wart that you're still only coming out to 1040. Right. Like, that's that's a lot of water drive off. Sure is. Um, all right, uh, let's see. Hops from the Flanders region was commonly used uh, for bitterness, while other varieties, if used at all, uh, were used in the last 30 minutes of the boil. Um, fermentation was usually carried out uh, from 64 to 72 degrees F, or 18 to 22 C, and usually only fermented 48 to 72 hours, then fined with isinglass, um, and then served five to six days after brewing. The Isinglass kind of is interesting. Yeah. Because this is around the, the time that the the race for the commercial lager was happening or, like, was almost a precursor to it. So I'm wondering about adding that fining into it also coincided with, you know, the in, invention of, like, glass glasses. Right, yeah. So they're saying, they're saying this is, like, historical, right? But we're talking about something that was less than 150 years ago, and they're using Isinglass, they're using glass glasses. We're talking, like, five, like turnaround time, five to six days. Yeah, this is... And we'll talk a little bit about this when we get into the next session, because it, it just immediately goes into modern farmhouse brewing. And, like, this feels modern to me. It, it does feel very modern. And then also to, to give a little bit more insight on these hops, hops from the north of France uh, and from 
Popperinge in Belgium were commonly used for bitterness, while finer varieties from Alsace or Alsace, I don't know how to pronounce that, I'm sorry, if used at all, they were these were reserved for the last half hour of the boil. Fermentation was carried uh, carried out at a range of 64 to 72, which you already said. Top fermenting yeasts there too, of course. Um, that's interesting, five to six days too. And I, you know, and, and when they were trying to get these big commercial loggers out, I'm sure that the consumption rate went through the roof, which is probably how they discovered that, you know, pulling these, these beers out fresh was, was a great idea. Right. They're good when they're laid down. They're good when they're fresh. I don't know. What do you want? You know? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of things were probably discovered during this industrialization period, which is a little bit earlier than this, more like 1700s, mm-hmm. but um, this probably carried over the next 200 years. So. Yeah, and so like that kind of brings us into like, so due to centuries of invasion, wars, industrialization, traditional farmhouse brewing uh, gave away to modern industrial brewing, uh, leaving the largest amount of like quote-unquote farmhouse breweries surviving um, not in France or Belgium, but in Franconia, uh, or northern, or which is a region in northern Bavaria. Beautiful region, by the way. Go. Right, well, and then this this area that we're talking about was heavy in farming, but then the coal industry sort of took over a lot of coal mining and a lot of um, the you know quarries and stone, different minerals and things were being pulled out of this area instead of farming mm-hmm. um, at that point, and that's why a lot of these little you know the your farmhouse breweries sort of went away. Yeah, Wilhelm didn't need to make beer for his family anymore. He could just go like work in the coal mine and buy the beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and these breweries, like in Franconia, have foregone the original ale styles and have moved to the more modern taste, producing more of the standard lagers of Bavaria. Like, which, I mean, who can blame them? Bavarian lagers are amazing and the most delicious beers to drink. We should be sponsored okay. by Bavaria. Uh, I should be wearing my Lederhosen. <laughs> How many yet? You don't have any later hosen yet? Not yet. All right. Well, next fest season. Well, now I'll have vacation time to go for Right. Next. You can stay with my brother. He'll go to fest again. <laughs> um, all right. Let's see. Uh, um, so two styles, have, at least according to the author, have emerged from the roots of farmhouse brewing into the modern era. Saison and Beardegard. Um are like the kind of the two that we're talking about. Um, and then I think the most interesting chapter of this book so far, granted we're only three in, but uh, is this a word on style? And I thought it was a really good chapter to to present early on. And just a good thing for us as beer drinkers to keep in mind, especially like beer nerds who are listening to a podcast on beer or making a podcast on beer. Um, beer styles evolve out of many things and can be fun to geek out over and help classify what we're tasting, but can lead to a pitfall of being disappointed when a beer doesn't fit perfectly into that box. Brian, how many times have you heard, like, a good beer, but out of style? Too many, and I don't give a shit, because I have then in turn written on the judging sheet, this beer is great, don't change anything, it's not to style, so you're getting dock points, that kind of thing. So yeah. this is bunch of times on on the podcast over the years um i think if it if it tastes good keep making it period if people like it if it sells keep making it yeah call it whatever you want you know what i mean if it's if you make something and it's more of a blah 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 style then that's then call it that if that's what 
that's what people want, just give it to them. <laughs> well, and it's it's like we 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 talk a lot about style on the show because like that's I mean it's a quantifiable way to talk about beer, right? Talk about this beverage that we all love. But at the end of the day, does style really fucking matter? Like we just did an entire episode. Like I feel like our our role of style series like is making fun of styles because we just did an entire episode making what, a cold tropical barley wine. The Man. fuck is that? Like I don't know. And then we're gonna make that beer, and somebody would drink it, and then they're gonna call it something different anyway. Don't yeah, they're gonna call it an old ale or something. Like maybe. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Alaskan, this is a- amber, Alaskan amber is technically an alt beer. I don't know. Is it really? Yes. Oh, shit. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Right, uh, or, or is it? <laughs> I don't know. It does, does it matter? It's a good beer. So. Um, all right. So the families of Wallonian Saison and French Beer de Garde can, be, uh, can cause immense frustration trying to peg them into a specific hole. Like, we've all had Saisons that defy style right like this saison is like on the edge of being a sour or this saison is on the edge of being a golden ale right yeah and i think if you can't or won't or don't uh do exactly what quote needs to be done for like you know your 30 what is it 35 24 like your saison dupont like Mm -hmm. it's gonna taste different and you know the, the factors are you know, too immense. There's too many factors to make something taste exactly the same every time to make, to take this, you know, let's, let's look at upper Midwest makes tater tot hot dish. I've had tater tot hot dish with the tater tots on the bottom. I've had tater tot hot dish with the tater tots on the top, which I think is the way to go. I mean, you, you get the crispier corn in there. You, yeah. you know, like, Cool, it's all the same. This saison, I don't know. Grandpa only had a bushel of this and a peck of that, and and it it ended up being this. And then whatever air was floating around came in through the slats in the barn and fermented it out. And then we figured out, oh, if we put some sugar in there, well, you know. Don't forget about the farm aspect of the farmhouse. Like every year is going to be different. Every year you're going to have different ingredients. Things are going to be slightly different. Like this year, Grandpa's cigarette ash fell into the into the brew. Like last year, didn't. yeah, pollinators are going to be working differently. Um, you know, like a, a bee flew into the the fermenter this year. What was what was stuck to the bee? I don't know. Some random yeast that came from far away. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, instead of focusing on metrics of the beer, we're going to try to find some saisons and some beer to guards to try along here. We'll try to let, let you guys know, but, uh, but also go out and find, find some on your own. Um, but don't focus on the metrics of the beer. Just try to judge the beer on how much you enjoy it. Like, and this is just, I mean, I think it's just good general advice. Like look for, look for base things like infection and off flavors. Other than that, kind of put style out of your head. Like, I think style gives you a good starting point. Like, if somebody says, hey, this is an IPA, you know to expect, like, hops, right? But don't necessarily let you let that put you off of the beer if it's not exactly what you have pictured as an IPA in your head. Which is why the three sip rule is important and, like, things like that. Three sip rule. Three sip rule. All right. Um, and, yeah, dogmatic adherence to styles can cause us to miss some amazing beers. 
truly. Yeah. Right, yeah, that is the beginning of the farmhouse uh, book, and then yeah, so we're gonna be diving into or deep into. I think it is Cezanne next, or is it Beardegard first? Uh, it's Beardegard first. We'll be diving into Beardegard, um, and so yeah, we'll be doing history and talking about Beardegard, and then uh, the following episode after that, we'll be talking about how to make a kick-ass Beardegard. Nice. All right. All right. Any, anything you'd like to add, Brian? Um, doing this on different computers and it feels so weird here we go alright guys if you have any questions comments show ideas or what have you go ahead and shoot us an email at feedback at blindindustudios.com or you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash blindindustudios or you can follow us on instagram at blindindustudios and I'll see you guys next week peace